to the partaking of the Lord's Supper, which is what our privilege is this morning, than to speak of the glorious return of Jesus Christ to the earth. The Apostle Paul declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 these words, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then notice this. Paul ends this section by saying, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As Christians, then, we are commanded to partake of the Lord's Supper, communion, because in doing so, we are actually proclaiming the Lord's death and His coming again to the earth. The very celebration of communion is by necessity then bound up with the second coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, every time we pick up that little cup with the juice that reminds us of the blood of Jesus Christ poured out on our behalf. And when we take that wafer, that element of bread, symbolizing for us again the body of Christ, his physical body which was given to us in death, when we hold those elements in our hands and when we look at them with our very eyes, we are in essence, calling upon the Lord to return to the earth. We're proclaiming to ourselves and to a watching world that Jesus Christ himself is coming again. And so, to mark this blessed occurrence, this time in which we celebrate the table of the Lord, communion, the Lord's Supper, all of those referring to the same reality, the bread and the cup, we are proclaiming the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. And that is the very thing that I want us to focus in upon this morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark 13. We will occupy ourselves in preparation for the reception of the Lord's table by focusing specifically on verses 24 to 29 of Mark 13. This is the perfect setting for us this morning. For in the celebration of the Lord's table, we need a word from God. And that word from Him to us is in his very word in this portion of Holy Scripture. It is the perfect setting to both understand and therefore to proclaim our Lord's return. Notice what it says. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, 
When you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Now this portion of God's book is, of course, pointing to the future. Because we know for a fact that Jesus Christ himself has not come in the way as described here. It is yet for us a coming in the future. And of course, I know that you know as well as I that the great challenge with looking to the future in our present culture to see our Lord's return is the very fact that we live in an age where many of us are frankly stuck in the present. We are so enmeshed with the here and now that frankly so many of us are not so concerned about the future at all. I wonder, very honestly, if you took a poll of how many Christians were anticipating the Lord's return with great eagerness, what kind of percentages you would receive? Would we be able to see 10% of Christians, true believers, eagerly awaiting the Lord's return? 15% maybe? 20? You say, why do you gauge it so low? Well, when you look around you and when you talk to professing believers and you ask them about the future, it seems that so many of them are so engrossed in the present or maybe even in the past that they are so bound up with such things that they're not at all looking toward the future. They're not living their life in light of the anticipation of Christ's return. It seems as though so many people are so engrossed with the present that they aren't looking at the future at all. They're not living their life presently in light of the future. So many people, so many Christians are attempting to live their life only for the present or maybe even some of them only on the basis of the past. Now I'll be the first one to say that the past is a good thing and that the Word of God tells us continually to remember the past, to hearken back to days of old. And of course for believers we hearken back to the past because we look at the person of Jesus Christ as sacrificed for us, and when we look at that past event, we see our salvation, don't we? And that's good. That's a good thing, to look to the past to see whether or not we've been truly converted. Or if some of you are contemplating Christ right now, it's absolutely imperative, and we'll talk about that in a moment, for you to look at the present. That is, do I presently, in the here and now, have a intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? Do I have that right now in my life? So I'm not speaking uh, so totally here as to discount both, both the past and the present. I'm simply asking uh, the question, what about the future? What about our future? And when we think about the future, when we think about Jesus Christ coming back, does it affect us? Or as the Apostle John says, when we think about his coming, are we ashamed or will we be ashamed? Will we shrink back when that future day arrives because we know that we haven't lived the way that we should live? It seems to me that so many people are living in the present and are not even concerned about the future at all. It's it's almost like what the world says, live it up now. Gain all you can gain now. Grab the gusto. There is no tomorrow. No rules, just right. So many people are living so much for the present, they're utterly unprepared for the future. They're only, in so many cases, looking back at the past or at the present with no clue and frankly sometimes no concern for the future. You know, a recent humorous survey revealed this to me so tellingly. 
because it centers so much on the past that it obviously ignores the future. It goes like this, just in case you were feeling too old today, this will certainly change things. Each year, the staff at Beloit College in Wisconsin puts together a list to try to give the faculty a sense of the mindset of that year's incoming freshmen. Here's this year's list. The people who are start, starting college this fall across the nation, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, were born in 1982. Does that make you old? Yes, I, I heard some of those grunts and groans. They have no meaningful recollection of the Reagan era and probably did not know he had ever been shot. They have no meaningful recollection of the Persian Gulf War and when it was waged, at least in terms of the full and complete understanding. They were so young so as to be grabbing the present, they didn't even realize what was going on and how significant that war really was. Black Monday, 1987, is as significant to them as the Great Depression. There's only been one pope. They have never feared a nuclear war. They are too young to remember the space shuttle blowing up. Tiananmen Square means nothing to them. Bottle caps have always been screw-off and plastic. The expression, you sound like a broken record, means nothing whatsoever to them. They've never owned a record player. They have likely never played Pac-Man and have never heard of Pong. They may never have heard of an 8-track. The compact disc was introduced when they were one year old. As far as they know, stamps have always cost about 33 cents. They have always had an answering machine. Most have never seen a TV set with only 13 channels, nor have they ever seen a black and white television. They have always had cable. There have always been VCRs, but they have no idea what beta is. <laughs> they cannot fathom not having a remote control. They were born the year that Walkmen were introduced by Sony. Roller skating has always meant in line for them. Jay Leno has always been on The Tonight Show. <laughs> now you know you're old. They have no idea when or why Jordache jeans were cool. <laughs> Popcorn has always been cooked in the microwave. They have never seen Larry Bird play. They never took a swim and thought about Jaws. The Vietnam War is an ancient history to them, as is World War I, II, and the Civil War. They have no idea what Americans, uh, why Americans were ever held hostage in Iran. They can't imagine what hard contact lenses are. They don't know who Mork was or where he came from. <laughs> they never heard, where's the beef, or I'd walk a mile for a camel, or de plain, de plain. <laughs> they do not care who shot J.R. and have no idea who J.R. even is. The Titanic was found. They thought we always knew where it was. Michael Jackson has always been white. Kansas, Chicago, Boston, America, and Alabama are places, not groups. McDonald's never came in styrofoam containers. There's always been MTV. They don't have a clue how to use a typewriter. You feel old yet? 1982. And you know, that's how quick time passes by. Can you think back to when you were living in 1982? That's really just a short 18 years ago. Some of you say, yes, I can. In fact, I can go much, much further than that. Well, it may be because you're living too much in the past. It's not wrong to have an acquaintance with the past. It's not wrong to be firmly rooted in the present. But it is very wrong, eternally wrong, not to be prepared for the future. And we laugh at these things, and we should, because often it does help us gain perspective on the past and the present. But one thing you know this doesn't do for us is it doesn't say anything about the future. Doesn't Paul say to us in 1 Corinthians 11 
as well as his reminders in other places that we are looking for the blessed hope of the believer, the glorious return of Jesus Christ, isn't much of Scripture telling us to look, to be alert, to be vigilant, to be wise, to be looking for the future, to prepare for it. And doesn't the Apostle John tell us in Revelation 22:20, 20, Amen, come, Lord Jesus, come. He lived in the anticipatory time of the moment, which was a time in the present but looking to the future. He wasn't dwelling on the past. He wasn't saying the present is where I am and that's where I like it. He was saying the present is where I am, but I'm looking to the future. I'm looking to the glorious return of Jesus Christ. And if there is ever a passage, beloved, that calls us to the future, it is Mark 13. I want to give you three outline points for this particular passage. First of all, in verses 24 to 26, I want to look at the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And then secondly, in verse 27, I want us to see the reaping of the elect when the glorious Christ returns. And then thirdly, the reminder of the fig tree in verses 28 and 29. The return of Christ, verses 26, uh, excuse me, 24, 25, and 26. The reaping of the elect at the return of Christ, verse 27. And the reminder of his return based on the fig tree analogy in verses 28 and 29. Now you know, because this is the seventh message in this series, that after all has been said, Jesus is now predicting his own very return. After the destruction of the temple is prophesied by Jesus and is discussed in verses 1 to 4, after the preliminary signs of the end of the age are given in verses 5 through 13, which is, of course, the preliminary signs that he calls the beginning of birth pangs. It's not the end, but it's going to signal the end, the end of the age, the consummation of the ages. And it began, of course, when those signs began, and those signs began right at that moment that he said such a thing. And after the discussion of those things comes, in verses 14 to 23, the discussion of the tribulation which started there, I believe, with the destruction of Jerusalem and his prophecy of it, and then carries through all the way to what we could call the great tribulation that signals the end of time. Now, I know that there are some people, I've defined them for you every time I've spoken in this series, who are called preterists, which is a word which means that they believe that these events are past, I know that some of them are still going to maintain that even verses 24 all the way through verse 30 or 31 is still referring to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. That's okay. Because even those preterists say that at least, at the very least, from verse 32 to verse 37, which closes out the chapter, that is a reference to the second coming. Even preterists, good people, good interpreters, wonderful Christians say that even this portion is not specifically referring only to the future. It's really referring not to the future at all, but to the destruction of Jerusalem. And they say, for instance, that when it talks about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light, verse 24, and the stars falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens being shaken, and in verse 26, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, they say that you can speak of these things in a way that does not force us to see them as exclusively future in their intent. And I might hasten to say that it is true that there are passages which speak most definitely of language just like this, and it was referring in the Old Testament not to the coming of Christ per se, but the coming of God himself in judgment against the Jews or against the nations because God was coming to them in the clouds of judgment. That's true. In other words... Sometimes when the prophetic speaker was talking about judgment or coming in clouds, it was referring to what we have said is hyperbolic language, hyperbole. 
We say that even in our own language all the time. When you admonish your children, you might say to them, I've told you a thousand times not to do such a thing. Now, of course, we know that we haven't said one thousand times about a particular thing, don't do this. Now, some of you may have done that a thousand times. If you've done that a thousand times, you'll say, I've told you a million times not to do that. And, of course, I always joke when they say, I've told you a thousand times not to do these things, and I believe that it was a thousand times that I told you not to do things. Surely it's a thousand times, and yet even when you joke about such things, we know that that's hyperbolic language. We know that we haven't spoken to our children in that way 1,000 literal times. The Bible even recognizes that. Sometimes it speaks in grandiose language. It speaks in hyperbolic language. It speaks in, in the kind of language that says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the Son of Man will be coming in clouds with great power and glory. And it's talking about a coming in judgment. It's not ta talking necessarily about a physical or literal coming of Christ to the earth, it's talking about a coming in judgment. And you know what? That's a valid interpretation of this passage. I just don't think it's the correct one. I just don't think that given the language of this passage and given a few keys, that that's what we're seeing here. I think that the issue of preterism, that which is past, ended with verse 23. Now I can see what they're saying. But it seems to me that when verse 24 commences and when he says, but in those days after that tribulation, I think when he uses the word that, he's speaking very specifically here of a particular tribulation and it is the tribulation that I believe that is referred to in Revelation chapter 7 verse 14 as the great tribulation. Look, there are always troubling times in our world, always. At some point around the globe, there is trouble going on. It, it may be a sense of peace or calm in the United States because we're not warring with each other right now. We're not warring specifically with another nat nation. But somewhere in the globe, there is unrest going on, and all you have to do is open up your newspaper or listen to the radio, and you know where it is. It's going on. It's real. It's nations warring against nations. It's people experiencing earthquakes and floods and famines and pestilences. That's true. There's no question about it. It is a form of tribulation. But I don't believe that verse 24 is speaking of anything other than the ultimate tribulation. I agree with those who say this language is hyperbolic, at least to some degree. But I see that sometimes the hyperbole ends. At some point, the hyperbolic language is over and what is being referred to is the real deal. In other words, hyperbole will one day end and reality take over. And I believe that the reality, not the hyperbole, is being spoken about here. After that tribulation, after that one, that one that will come upon the world that he says in verse 19 that since the beginning of creation which God created until now and never will will be a time of tribulation that has not occurred. That's what I think he's talking about. And then if you were to interpret exegetically this idea of that tribulation referring to not a generic one, but the great tribulation, then I think the language makes it clear. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and great glory. In other words, beloved, I believe that this is talking about none other than the physical, literal, bodily return of Jesus Christ to this earth. And it's yet to occur. And with that coming, it will bring us to the end of the age as we now know it. That's why I'm a futurist. 
I'm, I'm, I'm a futurist in the sense that I believe that there is a future coming glory of Jesus Christ. And the preterists will say, so am I. I believe that Jesus Christ will one day physically and bodily return to the earth, not just from this section. It's actually a little bit later. It begins on verse 32, but on that day or hour, no one knows, that being a reference to the coming of Christ physically and bodily and literally to the earth. I say no, I back it up to verse 24, and I do so because I think there's good reason to do so. And you know, there are some preterists who agree with me on that. In other words, there are some preterists, those who see these things as past predominantly, who would say, yes, I agree with you. I cut it off right there at verse 23 also. In other words, they agree that this language and the exegesis of the passage seems to suggest in language that's speaking not hyperbolically, but really, that this is the place where the return of Christ, where Christ is answering their question, their second question, and when will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This is that. In other words, the preliminary signs and the temple destruction, that's all going to happen in time, and it did. And it will also be that preliminary signs will even continue. There'll always be earthquakes and floods and famines and pestilences. And we won't ever know which one is which. We won't ever know which one is the actual preliminary sign which signals the end or the one that is just before the end which signals the great tribulation. It's always going to be trouble, always going to be tribulation. And I think that really means that there are people who are going to fall asleep at the wheel. They're going to say, look, just like... Peter said they would, look, where is the promise of his coming? He said he was going to come, where is it? Everything exists as it always has. Nothing's going to change. And that's when Peter says, watch out. Watch out. Because when you are so complacent that you think these preliminary signs, whatever they may be, wars and rumors of wars, false Christ, false messiahs, nations rising against nations, kingdom against kingdoms, the idea of a famine, an earthquake, a pestilence, some kind of great calamity that falls upon a nation or a group of people or a section of our world, somebody's going to say, yeah, but that stuff happens all the time. I mean, nothing's really going to happen. I mean, if, if, if that kind of calamity befell us in the United States, then sure, and certainly there have been those earthquakes. I've been a recipient of one of those. Some of you might also. And you might say, well, gee, that's certainly a lot different than what I've been experiencing. Maybe I better listen up a bit. But then after a while, when something doesn't follow that, then people say, no, another false alarm. And yet even preterists and futurists, the futurist kind of preterists and the preterist kind of futurists would say, look, all of these things they will one day have a primary application not in something that is past, but in something very much in the present. The future is here. It's come. You say, well, how do you know that this kind of language speaks of something that is future? Well, look in your Bibles at Isaiah chapter 13. I want to show you some passages that, again, if the sense of this text is true, and if we're talking about when that great tribulation has run its course, then Jesus Christ will return to the earth. Then we have something to say. Then maybe a passage like Isaiah chapter 13, which is the very language, I believe, that Jesus uses right here in Mark 13, comes to the fore. Look at Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. In other words, this is a prophecy about Babylon, about the captivity. Lift up a standard on the bare hill, raise your voice to them, wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. He goes on to talk about that, how there are so many who are proud and exulting, and he, he's going to execute his anger, verse 3, a sound of tumult on the mountains like that of many people, a sound of the uproar of kingdoms of nations gathered together. In other words, this is as its primary application, the idea of the prophecies about Babylon. But notice verse 6, judgment on the day of the Lord wail that means mourn for the day of the lord is near it will come as destruction from the almighty therefore all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt they will be terrified pains and anguish will take hold of them they will writhe like a woman in labor they will look at one another in astonishment their faces aflame behold the day of the lord is coming 
cruel, with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. In other words, you can use the first part of this passage to see the very thing that happens in a Babylonian captivity. There's no question about it. But the Old Testament prophet, he had the privilege, and even if he didn't understand what he was doing, God has the privilege of saying, and there's going to come an ultimate day of vengeance. And when you read a passage like this, and when you see the very kind of language that Jesus himself appears to use, borrowing it right out of Isaiah's prophecy, and when he says that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling and the heavens will be shaking, it's just, it sounds just like verse 10. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. This is, this is language of a future day. Even if it had its primary application in a bygone day, it's still, in my judgment, looking to the future. In chapter 34, verse 4, listen to this language again. It sounds exactly like what Jesus is referring to. And all the host of heaven will wear away or rot away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. An interesting reference to the fig tree, which we'll talk about in just a moment. In other words, these passages, while they certainly have a primary reference to something that no doubt Israel was going through right then, and either the judgment on Israel for their disobedience or the judgment of the nations surrounding Israel because of their wickedness upon God's people, surely some of this language is referring to a day as yet in the future. Because if it's talking about that kind of language in the past, what's to prevent it from talking in this kind of language in the future and not just hyperbolically, not just metaphorically, but literally so? In Ezekiel, another prophet of God, Ezekiel speaks of these things in chapter 32, verse 7. Think of the things that you read from Jesus' prophecy here in Mark 13, and then you read Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 7. And I will extinguish you. I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. You say, what's that a reference to? Primarily a lament over Pharaoh and Egypt. But that kind of language, beloved, speaks of a time in Mark chapter 13 where Jesus says, and after that tribulation, after that one, the one that is specifically referring to the great tribulation, the one that will come upon the whole world. I mean, it's, it's virtually assured all Christians believe, uh, no matter how or where you slice it, that this kind of calamity is going to come on the entire world. Shouldn't these passages be an allusion to such? Jesus certainly seemed to think so. He quoted from them. He borrowed the language. He certainly believed he had the freedom to do so. In Joel chapter 2, it talks about this terrible visitation again on the world. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Verse 10, before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? 
Chapter 3, verse 15. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Jesus is quoting from these very places. And an Old Testament person, the very disciples themselves, Jewish by race and religion, would hear him say these things and they would immediately go back to these Old Testament prophets and say, well, when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? If it's going to happen only in the destruction of Jerusalem, we can see it. But what about what they said in Acts chapter 1? Is it now, after your ascension, that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it now? He says, it is not for you to know the times or the epics. And it's going to happen. And obviously, for them, especially those who survived the 70 A.D. destruction, they must have looked for a future time. That's the whole warp and woof of a Jewish mind. He continually looks forward to a messianic visitation in which God will make all things right. That's part of the fabric of a Jewish thought. God, when are you going to restore the promises that you made to Israel? And they didn't just have in mind there some kind of spiritual fulfillment. They had the idea in their mind so firmly planted because they had their feet on the ground. They were the ones who were undergoing physical pain and torture and death. And the idea wasn't just, Lord, when are you going to see us restored spiritually speaking? No, sir. Not on your life. They are talking about the physical fulfillment of the blessings that were promised by those Old Testament prophets. When is that going to happen, Lord? When is this land going to be truly ours? Don't you see now, even with Camp David Accords and writings and discussions and agreements, that the whole thing is issued over the land itself? It's the idea that the Palestinians, Arabs, and the Jews are saying, it's our land. And the Jews, of course, would say under their breath and outside the discussion table, we know it's our land because God has given it to us. He's promised it to us. They don't see that rather loudly because the time they start doing that, then the Arabs become quite upset and then you have wars. And so they intricately work their way through all of these processes, but the issue will always be this. The Arabs want it and the Jews want it. Who's going to get it? Who's going to have it? And these Old Testament prophets say it's going to happen one day and it's going to be that God will fulfill His promises of not just the spiritual blessings upon all of those who are by faith Abraham's seed, that's all believers, but one day God will visit upon the very people who are Israel. Not every single Israelite, because not every single Israelite is a true believer, but all true Israel, all those who are really believers... All of those who are really, truly looking to Jesus Christ as their Messiah, He's going to give them that land. It's going to happen. You can't read some of these prophets without this idea. And I know some do, but it's so hard for me to see these things. It seems to me that in Zechariah's prophecy, you have some of these things that, that seem so clear to the mind. What does Zechariah say? Maybe you could turn in your own Bible to Zechariah chapter 14 and maybe you can see these things. It seems to me that these ideas issue forth in us a belief that Zechariah himself is prophesying the very thing that Jesus says is going to come to pass. Look at verse 5 of Zechariah 14. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. The same kind of language that Jesus is using here, the sun and the moon becoming dark. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day or night, but it will come about that at that evening there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. You say, well, when is this? When might this occur? I think it's going to occur as Revelation chapter 6 tells us it will. Verse 12, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, 
That's the Lamb, that's Christ. And there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll. Do you remember Isaiah's words? When it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free men hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains because they wanted to praise the Lord? No. And they said to the mountains and to the, flo- uh, and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? In other words, they're not going to repent. They just want to find some mountainous region so that the full fury of the wrath of God doesn't fall on them and they repent. They want to say no to God even at that moment. Isn't that incredible? I believe that's happening in the future. I don't believe that Revelation 6 is referring to something in the past. It may be true that at times some of that language could be borrowed, some of that language could be used to refer to some instances in the past. I grant you that, but I believe this is primarily an issue of the future. Just as I think the first part of Mark 13 is primarily a reference to the past, I think this is primarily a reference to the future. So what's going to happen? There's going to be a great tribulation. They're going to be people who are going to die. It's going to be great devastation. Some even think that the Bible hints at the idea that one-fourth of the world's population is going to die. We're not talking metaphorically here. We're not talking symbolically. We're talking about people actually losing their lives. And depending on where you put the part of the rapture of the church, the taking of the church away... It may very well be that believers and unbelievers are dying on the earth. Great tribulation, as such the world has never known. And when it's at its fever pitch, then Jesus Christ says, I will come back. In other words, the only way for this world to be righted and the only way that the true king of the earth can deal with the menacing nature of this world and with the Antichrist is for the true Christ to come. He's the only one that can battle the forces of wickedness in the earth. Only Christ. And when Jesus refers to his glorious coming in the clouds with great power and glory, I believe he's speaking of his physical return to the earth. And notice verse 27. As the Lord returns, one of the glorious aspects of His return is the reaping of the elect. This is, this is so wonderful. Can you notice it here? Can you affirm it with me? Verse 27, And then He will send forth the angels and will gather together His elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Oh, We should just pause here and just pray and praise God and thank Him that His wrath is poured out on the earth in such a a global impact that the world has never seen the devastating fury of God's vengeance like this. And yet in His heart, in His heart of hearts, in His compassion for His own, for His elect, it says He will send forth the angels. It's the analogy of the reaping that's been talked about in other places in the Bible. This is the harvest. These are all of those people who love Jesus Christ and the elect from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Oh, this is so glorious. This is so wonderful. If you know Jesus Christ, if you are passionately pursuing Him, if you are intimate with Christ, if you have a living, dynamic relationship with Christ, even though you and I might go through this time or might be delivered from it, one thing is sure. One day we're all coming with Christ from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven and we will reign with Him. He'll gather together His elect. And believe me, He knows who you are. He knows who you are. And people always ask me, it's so funny, people say, well, how many people are these? How big is the elect? And I always say to them, it's bigger than anybody could count. Now it does say in Matthew 7 that there are many who are on the broad road and few who are on the narrow road but even those few on the narrow road is such a large number that we can't even count the number 
You say, how so? Revelation chapter 5, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And the upshot is that there's only one person, the Lamb, Jesus Christ himself. He's the only worthy one. In verse 8, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden bowl of incense. And the prayers of the saints were with them in that incense. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, these martyred saints, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. How many? Verse 11, and I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. You say that doesn't sound like very much. You understand that when this was written by the Apostle John that's all the numeric system they had. You couldn't say more than this. Myriads of myriads. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. In our parlance we would say and billions and trillions and trillions. And what were they saying? Well, the, with a loud voice that I can't duplicate, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And everybody just fell down and worshiped. Jesus Christ. Oh, what a scene that's going to be. Are you a part of that scene? Is that true of you? Is that your life? Revelation 7, Romans 11 talks about the ingathering of both Jews and Gentiles together to form the one new man in Christ. And it talks about numbers that no man can know. It's more than the sand on the seashore. It's more than the stars of the sky. Are you among that number? Is that where you are? Remember, it's a reaping of the elect. It's a harvest. Are you a part of the grand and glorious seed of God, the seed of faith? And if that weren't enough, he gives us a reminder. Notice what he says. He gives us a fig tree as an analogy. He says in verse 28, this is, this is exactly what we need to know. What kind of reminder is it? Learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. What's he saying? He's using an analogy to remind his hearers about the nearness of his return. We commonly call it the imminent return of Christ. That means that Christ could come back at any time. It means that we believe the Lord could return at any time. Some people say, well, wait a minute now. If these other signs are preliminary and they have to occur, doesn't that hedge against the Lord's imminent return? No, it does not. Not at all. Why? Because we can't know the precise time. We can't know when these signs, whenever they are, whenever they're coming, we can't know if that's the end. So we're always in the ready position. Always. We don't know when it's the end. And frankly, we might not even know when we're exactly in it that that's the end. Jesus said, learn from this parable. In other words, when all of the things that I have predicted come to pass, it's like the maturing of the fig tree. You'll know that my return is imminent. When you see that this tree is ripe, you know that my return is there. You say, well, when will I know that it's ripe? If I don't even know the time of your actual return, how can I know of the signs that are preceding your return? And the answer is in verse 32, no man knows the hour. What's the point? Be ready. Be ready. If you don't know the precise time, be ready. You say, be ready? Yes. And how can I be ready? Well, if we're celebrating the Lord's table this morning, this is what it says. For he who drinks and eats, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number even sleep. In other words, if we are celebrating this Lord's table right now, this very morning, and we are not ready, if we are not vigilant, vigilant, if we do not know the hour of Christ's return, then we must judge this table rightly. That means that my heart must be right with Jesus Christ. 
I must have a relationship with him. I must have confessed my sin. I must have said to Christ, you're the king, I'm the subject. You tell me what to do, I do it. You tell me to place my complete confidence and trust in you, and I do so because if you're coming, my life must be right, and if you're coming imminently so, my life must be right right now, today, right now, right this very moment. Beloved, don't partake of this table unless your life is right with Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'm a Christian, and certainly any Christian can partake of these elements, but if you're a Christian and you know that your life is not right with Christ, you know you have damaged relationships, you know you have sin to confess, confess it now. Seek to right those relationships. But certainly if you don't know Christ, don't partake of this because you're partaking judgment upon yourself because you're saying, I'm partaking of these elements when Christ isn't really mine. Christ isn't my Lord, He isn't my Savior, and I'm not ready for His coming. How great it is to prepare for the Lord's table by saying, I'm a Christian, I know Christ, I'm living for Him, and I know that if He were to come even this very moment, I'm ready. I'm ready. Are you ready for Christ's coming? Are you ready for His return? Bow your heads with me. Is this the generation of Christ's return? Is this where we are? Is Christ coming again? Oh, if it is so. Oh, if this is the time. You must be ready. As the men come to give you the elements, I want you to bow your heads and I want you to spend some time in silent meditation, taking spiritual stock, inventory of your life. I want you to keep out all distractions. Don't look around. Don't see what others are doing, just concentrate on your own heart. Am I ready for the Lord's return, this glorious return? Do I know Him? Do I love Him? Have I forsaken my sin for the sake of the Savior that I love? And even though I I might not know much about Him, I, I know enough to know that He's saved me from my sins, that He's given me eternal life, and I am therefore ready to meet him. Even though I may, may be young in the faith, I'm ready to meet him because I know that his heart is mine and that I am his. Lord, we pray that as this bread is passed, that the men and women of my hearing would say to themselves in the quietness of their own heart, I know Christ, or I don't know him. And for those of you who don't know him, let the bread and the cup pass from you without partaking and meet with myself or one of the elders in our prayer room or someone that you may have come with and say to yourself, I must know Christ. I don't want to be left behind. I don't want to to be in this great tribulation. Oh, Father, save those to whom you have appointed to eternal life. Reap even now at least the first fruits of your elect so that they may be with the rest gathered from the east and the west. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.